Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Something big may be happening in Iraq. Last month, while a lot of us were watching the NBA playoffs, Iraqis went to the polls to vote in a parliamentary election, which is something that only happens every four years. The results were shocking, to say the least. The clear winner in the election was a Shia cleric named Muqtada al-Sadr, whose coalition of candidates outperformed the coalition of candidates headed by the incumbent prime minister, Haider al-Abadi. Now, al-Sadr has opposed U.S. involvement in Iraq for years, so his victory really puts into question the relationship that the U.S. will have with Iraq going forward. More than this, though, al-Sadr's victory suggests that sectarianism in Iraq, you know, that Sunni-Shia divide we always read about in the news, that might be breaking down. If this is the case, Iraq might be undergoing a huge political transformation, one that has the potential to reshape the country. In this episode, we'll dive deeper into the election and potential political transformation and hear from an expert teacher on how he helps his students navigate the complexities of contemporary Iraq. Welcome to episode 10, Teaching About Iraq, A State in Flux. Many may think that everything that has taken place in Iraq since 2003 has gone the wrong way. But the fact that Iraq has cyclic elections every four years can be considered in many ways a positive achievement. This election signifies a few things. One is the first one that happened after the defeat of ISIS that took one-third of Iraq from 2014 until early 2018. Second, the outcome of the election seems to differ quite significantly from the outcomes of previous election, making the possibility for a significant shift in Iraq politics possible. We'd like to introduce you to Dr. Mohammed al-Maliki director of the Iraqi American Institute and current associate at the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs at Harvard University. Dr. Al-Maliki has been studying Iraqi politics and society his entire life. For this reason, we asked him to break down the election in Iraq that just happened. In order to understand it, we have to look back at what happened in 2005, 2010, 2014 elections. Iraqis, for the most part, voted along ethnic and sectarian lines, meaning the Shia, who constitute about 65% of the Iraqi population, Sunnis, about 15%, and the Kurds, between 15 and 20%, voted for their own respective political parties, whether in one list or in several lists. And the subsequent government formation gave a preference to the list that won the most election. And this, by demographic reality, went to the Shia, who opted to make a coalition government to give Sunnis and Kurds ministerial position and other posts in government. 
However, this episode of election has shown significant division within each major demographic list, i.e. the Shias who voted in one or two lists now has become five, and the Sunnis more than three, and the Kurds are now up to five. This basically means there is a possibility for an inter-sectarian, uh, an inter-ethnic coalition formation that would break the tradition that has formed since 2003 along these sort of sectarian and ethnic lines. In other words, Shiites, who are in the majority, always voted for Shia candidates, and Sunnis, who are in the minority, always for Sunni candidates, at least since the fall of Saddam, when Iraqis were allowed to hold free and fair elections. That was the way it worked until this election, that is, when Sunnis and Shias both started breaking up into smaller and smaller factions. It'd be like if the Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and Green Partiers and all the other parties started splintering here in the U.S. So why did this happen all of a sudden? This has to do with what each Iraqi demographic constituency reacted to 2002-2003 event. The Shia found an historic opportunity to consolidate power in order to prevent the trauma of the old regime. The regime of Saddam Hussein persecuted the Shia and the Kurds and gave some relative preference to his own co-religionists. I think what we see now is that the Shia dominant government since 2003 hasn't delivered much with respect to security services and good governance, and that made even the Shia voters look somewhere else, uh, look at possible good men within the Sunnis and within the Kurds to make a transsectarian government formation rather than adhering to this sort of old notion that the Shia are most likely to be protective of their interests. This paradigm is shifting. It seems that it was no longer enough that a politician was a co-religionist or the same ethnicity as voters, whether Arab or Kurd. The majority of Iraqis were clearly unhappy with the status quo, and that opened the door wide open to those who were preaching reform and change. One difference about this election it did not give a significant plurality to any political faction. The plurality went to a group named Sairun, and Sairun means in Arabic, marchers. Sairun for uh, Islah, marchers for reform, led by the controversial religious leader, Muqtada al-Sadr, known to many Americans and, and the world, perhaps, for his action in the early stages of the uh, occupation. Now, it's pretty safe to say that Muqtada al-Sadr was at least over the last 15 years, not a fan of U.S. involvement in Iraq. He hated Saddam Hussein, but he also opposed the U.S. presence in the country, so much so that he encouraged Iraqis to resist the U.S. and the Iraqi politicians that the U.S. supported. Some U.S. officials and Western media outlets have blamed him for inciting violence and for persecuting minorities, too. In other words, he's a pretty controversial figure, both outside and inside Iraq. And while it's important to note that he himself will not become prime minister since he didn't actually run for office, he is the public face and de facto head of his party, and he'll likely be able to select the new prime minister. So how did he do it? How did this man win? 
one of the reasons he won plurality is his trying to take Iraq away from the Iranian and the American influences and form a distinct new Iraqi nationalism that crosses sect and ethnicity. And he led protests in Baghdad streets for years, uh, since 2015, and he made his coalition with a few secular forces, including the Iraqi Communist Party, is very unlikely coalition, but he is trying to signal to the broad Iraqi population that his intention is towards reform and uh, doing away with the political tradition that ensued uh, since 2003. The voters knew where Muqtada Sadr was headed and giving him their votes could carry a very important significance for moving Iraq from the Iranian influence. However, about 70 seats have gone to two lists that have made their positions very known that they lean towards continued Iranian influence in Iraq. But the intercoalition talks so far indicate that the current is with the first scenario, meaning forming coalitions with the mission to move away from the Iranian influence. In many ways, the elephant in the room in all of this is Iran, which just makes the situation much more complicated. Like the U.S., Iran has worked really hard to influence the future of Iraq since the 2003 invasion. The two countries share a border, and Iran feels that having a friendly neighbor next door would make Iran more secure and give Iran much more influence in the region. Keep in mind, too, that the majority of Iraqis are, like most Iranians, Shia Muslims, which in some ways sets them apart from the rest of the predominantly Sunni Islamic world. It's true that the division within the Islamic Ummah, Islamic nation, uh, occurred in the wake of the Prophet's death. And this is when Muslims uh, were divided into two religious convictions, the Sunnis and the Shia. However, the Sunnis came to dominate the Muslims, especially Arab Muslims, for the most part across history, while the Shia became minority, less than 15%. And uh, except for very short times, they never really ruled the Muslim world. That changed in 1979 when the Iranian Islamic Revolution took place. And that marked a significant shift in the, in the Muslim political dynamic and galvanized both Shia and Sunnis in different ways. Shia found an opportunity to assert themselves as uh, political and social powers in the Muslim life. And the Sunnis reacted negatively to the new rise of the Shia. And that change in dynamic converted a peaceful coexistence and some sort of an understanding between a dominant Sunnis and a minority Shia into a conflict that escalated and correlated with the increasing assertion of uh, Iran as a Shia power in the region and perhaps in, in the world. That puts many Iraqi politicians between the proverbial rock and hard place. Being a country that is a majority Shia and has a natural affiliation with Iran, but also has its own ethnic affiliation with the Arabs, Iraq became a bit confused on how to react to this dynamic and is still trying to find a way to appease the Shia and the Sunni uh, in order to reach some sort of a peaceful existence within them.
Then came the so-called Islamic State, which made life difficult for anyone in its territory who did not adhere to its particular interpretation of Sunni Islam. The result was that the sectarian status quo, that is the new status quo, the post-Saddam status quo, well, that was abandoned once again. Prime Minister Abadi gained close to 260,000 votes in Mosul, which is a purely Sunni and somewhat Kurdish province, and that is unprecedented. The people of Mosul had always voted only to Sunni lists, and now 11 seats in Mosul has gone to a Shia leader, and that tells us that if a Shia leader behaves well in a Sunni area, the whole sectarian design can break down. And that was demonstrated because the Abadi conducted the war with a tremendous caution uh, not to inflict uh, major casualties on the uh, Sunni population and treat them well. And that, for the most part, uh, happened. The second uh, positive uh, thing is that the Sunnis who had this notion that uh, some of them at least, that the Shia capturing of power is a uh, transient uh, historic accident, and we would eventually take it back. The myth of, of that has gone forever. The Sunnis in these areas experienced for themselves and examined what the alternative would be, and it was uh, quite uh, traumatic and atrocious, and that pushed them back to embrace the state, trying to work within the states, either at the demographic level or on the leadership level. And this is amply demonstrated now in the way the political factions across Iraq is negotiating. So where does that leave us? What we have witnessed since 2003 has been a reaction, for the most part, to a bloody legacy of Saddam Hussein. The Sunnis had taken it for granted that they are the legitimate and historic rulers of Iraq, and that right should have never been taken away from them. The Shia found themselves the new rulers of Iraq, and this was not in their dreams given their persecuted history, and that applies to the Kurds as well. So for the past 15 years, I would say with a bit of discomfort that the Sunnis haven't come to terms with the change in the political reality in Iraq. And the Shia have been very confused in trying to come to terms with their trauma and the Kurds as well. 15 years of civil war, corruption, challenges, regional difficulties, they have finally started reaching out to each other and crossing the sectarian and ethnic lines towards a new way of understanding. And we are seeing more of this now, actually these days, in the, the weeks after the election. Uh, and there is a very high possibility that a fraction of the Shias, about 100 seats, along with a fraction of the Sunnis, 30 or 40 seats, and a fraction of the Kurds, 30 or 40 seats, will form a majority government and pushing other Sunni Kurds and Shia to opposition. And if that happens, it will mark a huge departure towards a more real, uh, pluralistic and stability, I hope, because everybody will have a stake in ruling Iraq and there's no dominance of a particular ethnic or sectarian group. Some Sunnis voted for Shia leaders and not all Shias voted for Shia candidates which seems to show us how the incumbent Haider al-Abadi lost and how Maqtada al-Sadr effectively won. Because of the sectarian switching up, we may actually be witnessing the redrawing of the Iraqi political map. And if that's the case, 
well, that could give rise to a political climate that de-emphasizes sectarianism and ethnicity, and one that puts platform and policy front and center. If this is really what's going on, what does this mean for the person who will become the next prime minister of Iraq? Abadi had one legacy that he will be remembered for, and uh, he was a good coordinator, uh, a good war coordinator. Uh, he, he was able to put uh, the Iranians along the Americans and along uh, some Gulf support and European support to defeat ISIS, and he did it very successfully. But another area that he failed in, and uh, perhaps because his attention was consumed by the war on ISIS, is the corruption and the service sector. And the next stage, Iraq will need a fighter like him, but on the economic sphere, will be able to put a dent in this rampant corruption and provide better services for the Iraqis and rebuild hospitals and schools and universities and roads and houses. Um, so the, the better leader will be the leader who will be able to do that. And his success in doing that depends on the type of government he will be able to forge. And if he doesn't forge it in the right way to give him the power to do so, I don't think he will be suited and maybe an alternative will be better. And what about future U.S. involvement in Iraq? Iraqis are looking into some sort of a balanced engagement, not something that is severely interventional, that challenges the country's sovereignty. And some of that happened between 2003 and 2010, 2011, and that was counterproductive. And then the disengagement between 2009 and 2014 led to the disastrous ISIS phenomenon, and we lost almost half of Iraq. So a, a balanced presence uh, of the U.S. In, in Iraq, especially in the soft power arena now, uh, you know, economics, investment, education, health, universities, diplomacy, uh, I think Iraqis have realized um, uh, across their political and religious convictions uh, that Americans are not bad, and some dose of American in, in Iraq will be not only tolerated but needed. Because I see now uh, an opportunity for these two countries to have a, a very genuine partnership for the years to come because of this common sacrifices and common history we have been experiencing together for the past 15 years. about Iraq can be daunting to say the least. So much has changed between 2003 and today that it can be difficult to parse out the pieces in a meaningful way. Well, to give you some pointers on how you can get started in teaching about contemporary Iraq, we turn to a top-notch public high school history teacher here in Massachusetts. My name is Nicholas Restaino, and I teach history at Hamilton Winter Regional High School. I teach from grades 9 all the way up through grade 12. Most of my Iraq lessons are for seniors, sometimes in the second semester of their senior year, but I will do some lessons with freshmen around Iraq because I do teach about the Middle East on my world history curriculum. So let's start with the most obvious question. Where to begin with such a huge topic like Iraq? When I start teaching about Iraq, I have to make the determination based on the curriculum, based on the students, where I should begin. So with a freshman world history curriculum, where I'm dealing with world history from about 500 to 1600 AD, I'm not going to do that many lessons on contemporary Iraq, but I will be doing lessons on uh, the rise and spread of Islam, the four rightly guided caliphs, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Ottomans. And in those lessons, as a way of hooking students in, I might do a lesson on something going on currently in Iraq, or if there was big news going on 
Uh, I might do a, you know, drop everything and do a lesson on, on that. Nicholas has found a lot of success drawing from the headlines, and he weaves current events into his lessons to pique students' interest and also to help them draw connections between the present and the past. So we often find ourselves feeling dispirited by the news cycle. The news cycle is 24-7. It's relentless. There's this emphasis on, on scandal. But when something's in the news and a kid is hearing about it, it's popping up in their news feed, or it's just being talked about at the dining room table, that is something that I can use to my advantage. So for instance, when the Yazidis are being persecuted on Sinjar Mountain, that was my hook. Who were the Yazidis? What is ISIS? How did ISIS form? Why is it that ISIS was targeting the Yazidis on, on Sinjar Mountain? When ISIS was taking territory in Syria and in Iraq, and there was talk in the news cycle about the Iraqi army abandoning their posts, that was a hook. Well, how do you get ISIS? And why is it that they're trying to conquer territory in the Middle East? They see it in their own lives, and then we can go back into history and see the different strands that connect and weave together to make uh, what the, the tale that we see today unfold. And how about for his more advanced students? For contemporary United States history curriculum, I will do my first lessons on Iraq will be Operation Desert Shield because I'll be doing a lesson uh, in a unit on the 90s. So my lesson on the Persian Gulf War starts with why did the Saudis ask for the United States to send troops to guard Saudi soil, which eventually led to Operation Desert Storm. That helps later when I do a full unit on the 2000s where the United States invasion of Iraq is, is a big part of that curriculum. When it comes to the war in 2003, Nicholas does something pretty interesting. He puts students in the driver's seat. When I teach about the United States invasion of Iraq in 2003, I try to get the students to understand what was going on at the time. Why is it that people at the highest positions of authority in the United States government were so set on invading Iraq? Why is it that they believed the evidence that was being brought to them that said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, that he had ties to Al-Qaeda, and why they were reluctant to believe the dissidents who were saying, if you look at these claims, they're not really checking out. With my seniors just the other week, uh, I did a simulation of the decision-making process for invading Iraq. What I did is I gave them a role to play, and I gave them declassified documents that I got through the National Security Archive at George Washington University that those individuals would have seen at that time. So one group uh, becomes Donald Rumsfeld, and I give them a declassified document that Donald Rumsfeld would have seen that talks about the reasoning behind why we need to go after Saddam. I give another group uh, George Tenet as a role to play, and I give them a document uh, that's produced by the CIA that voices concern with the claim that Saddam Hussein's government is purchasing yellow cake uranium from Niger. And it goes through all the reasons why that doesn't seem to be the case. That evidence isn't strong. Uh, another group uh, gets to be Tony Blair, uh, United Kingdom Prime Minister, and they get a memo that outlines all of the, the different reasons for the war in Iraq, including a line that says that the claims that Saddam Hussein has ties to Al-Qaeda are not very convincing, that there isn't great evidence to suggest that he's ramping up his weapons and mass destructions program. Rather, our tolerance for that WMD program is now limited. Finally, the last group play members of Congress, and they get a draft national intelligence estimate, which includes dissent from the Department of Energy, from the Department of State, that calls into question some of the claims that uh, some other intelligence sources are making about Saddam's weapons and mass destructions program. 
the students read these documents, they decide on their own whether or not they are going to support the war, and then they discuss amongst themselves from the position of the person that they're taking on whether or not they feel the evidence is strong enough. Then I show the class the NIE that members of Congress did see. It's very polished, there's charts, there's pictures, and there's none of the dissent in the draft NIE. And that lesson is a very powerful one for, for my students because it puts them in the role of decision maker. They have read some of the documents that were floating around the highest levels of the government, and they've taken on the role of that decision maker. I mean, when you talk about civics education and trying to prepare students to be active, engaged citizens, uh, I can't really think of, of better ways than to put them in those positions and have them read those primary sources, analyze those primary sources as if they were somebody making that decision. Hopefully that gets them to think about their role in a democratic society and what kind of decision making they want to see from their leaders. Nicholas also has his students close read the news, which not only builds their media literacy skills, but it gets them familiar with the people, events, and issues that are shaping present-day Iraq. One of the ways that I try to build students' vocabulary, literacy, understanding of Iraq is, and this is going to sound almost silly, it's just I have them read articles on it. And what I have students do is focus on words that they don't know. And I prep them by saying, you are not going to know some of these terms. The more you see these terms, the more you see them explained, that's going to build up what I refer to as the reservoir of information. So what I would have students do is every week they had to complete an article review by the end of the week. They had to read an article about something going on in the Middle East. If uh, we were doing Iraq, they are focusing on Iraq. And they would write me two paragraphs. One paragraph was about describing what they had read. And another paragraph would be describing why it was important. And what was interesting is at the beginning of the semester, students would really struggle with why what they were reading was important. By the end of the semester, they built up their vocabulary. They'd up their understanding and they could start making connections as to why certain things were significant. And one thing that I try to stress to the students is that if they're feeling frustrated, that's fine because that's part of the process, that you're in school to learn things. And so you're not going to come in here fully formed, you're going to come in here not knowing stuff and hopefully by the end of the semester you know more and you have more understanding of what's going on. And importantly, Nicholas always stresses the need for multiple perspectives and asks his students to put themselves in others' shoes. In any context, whether it be ninth graders or 12th graders, I will ask them to think about how would you feel if you were somebody living in Iraq today? Would you feel hopeful? Would you feel pessimistic? Uh, who would you be upset with? Would you be upset with the United States who invaded the country or would you be upset with the terrorist group or the militia group that's been harassing or haranguing you or your neighbors? Would you blame Saddam Hussein, the, the terrible dictator that ruled over the country for so many years? By asking students to think about how they would feel personalizes it for them and gets them to think about how they would react in that situation so that maybe down the line they try to empathize with people when, when they're making a decision and also help them clarify why they're doing what they're doing to think about uh, what the consequences are, how they would feel in a particular situation, so that no matter what they do in life, they can take a step back and, and think about the long-term consequences of their decision before they, they do it. Politics can get complicated everywhere, and Iraq is no different. 
but it's essential that your students know the key figures and issues in Iraqi politics today if they really want to know what's going on in the country and understand U.S. policy in the Middle East more broadly. We hope this episode has given you a deeper understanding not only of the significance of the recent election, but also of the ways in which you can integrate contemporary Iraq into your curriculum. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about this podcast, our sponsors, and for free online resources that can help you teach about Iraq, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. And if you love this podcast as much as we do, let us know by reviewing us on iTunes. More reviews means more new listeners, which ultimately means more great episodes for you.